Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What are you talking about? This conversation can serve purpose. Hello, my friends. You are Jay talking. Bradley Jay here. We're live midnight to five. It's July 1, and here we're worried about our tea passes costing more, but back in 1863, there was something else more important to worry about. It was actually day one of the Battle of Gettysburg in the Civil War. So we're going to take a deep look into that. We're going to take a deep dive in. And we have Peter Drummy with us, Chief Reference Library of the Massachusetts Historical Society. Sir, thank you. My pleasure. By the way, do you have interesting artifacts over there at the Historical Society? You must. We are primarily collect personal papers, letters and diaries, millions of pages of those. But then there are thousands of artifacts, a whole range of things. Can people just go to the Historical Society or do you need a... An appointment or an invitation? No, to, to come in to the historical side, <clears throat> we're open Monday through Saturday and on into the evening on Tuesdays. You can come around it and off the street. And because we have valuable things, we're there to make them available, but also with the custodians of them. You have to register to use the library. And it's a library where things are brought to you. But, oh, really? But, it, but on the other hand, um, all of this is available to anyone who can make profitable use of it. So if you wanted to go and see what you have, you would sign up ahead of time? No, I think the best thing to do is to look at our catalog that's at our website. Um, that would be – and see the kinds of things we have. It's often helpful to talk to a reference librarian or make an appointment to see one just so someone can coach you into things you might not be aware of. That oh, we have. okay. Let's Well, let's take five minutes to just find out what you have and – Maybe folks could go see it. What would you recommend be, if you're a tour guide? Well, I think uh, just this week, one of the things that would um, immediately come to mind is things to do with the writing and the proclamation of independence in 1776. We have papers of John Adams, who served in the committee to write the Declaration of Independence. We have a first printing of the Declaration of Independence. We have manuscript copies that both John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, the principal author of the Declaration of Independence, made of, of what they intended it to say. The text that we know, that we celebrate, is a little bit different and substantively different in some respects from what they intended at the committee that wrote it. Intended. When you say manuscript copy, does that mean the handwritten copy? Exactly. Yeah. Actually written by Thomas Jefferson and by John Adams. So his hand was right on that paper. Paper, right on that paper. By the way, what's the paper like? 
the paper's very good. It's um, This is almost all imported into the United States and then colonial America from England and Holland, but it's made of rags pounded to pieces, so the paper itself is really high quality um, and um, stands up very well. The ink is um, uh, acidic, so it's etched into the paper, so it's permanently there. It's brown or tan or beige, but it's actually wonder- in wonderful condition, much right. better than modern paper. So a regular person can't, cannot, I'm guessing, can go in and say, may I see the Thomas Jefferson manuscript of the pre-Constitution, and they don't just bring it to you. That's not possible, right? I think whenever we can, we do. Really? It's not. It's to see it. It's not that these are all things that have been digitized and yeah. published, so you're not using them to do research necessarily. Um, but I think there's a, there's a value in simply seeing something real from the past. So you can see the real item? Yes. That blows me away, and... and isn't that dangerous? Because some crazy person can go in there and that's wreck this, it. That's this balance between um, making things available and being good custodians of them. So you do show something like that in a controlled setting. This is, but most of the time, people when they come to do research are looking at historical documents from the past. That most things are not transcribed and published. Um, there aren't facsimiles of them. You're looking at the things themselves. Very. Um, valuable or famous things, there's a fact similar that have been published. But as I say, there still is a value in seeing things themselves. How is it displayed? Under, in glass or? And, well, there, there are, things are displayed in, in a Staples dis- plastic folder? No, no, no they're, they're, <laughs> they're, 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 they're in, um, uh, it's plexiglass rather than glass, okay. but in display cases or in display folders which have a clear inert plastic okay. to go over them. Were they at, I saw something at the MFA. There were two versions of the Constitution uh, that I thought were written by two different people. Maybe, maybe not two versions, but two manuscripts. Would they it, were shown, I don't know, maybe two, three years ago? Yeah, did, they, did they, they come from you? Yeah, the, there what you're seeing is, as I was saying, is um, the committee, there were five people who wrote the Declaration of Independence, and then the, then we'll get to the Constitution in a minute, but there are people who wrote the Declaration oh, of Independence. Oh, that was it? Okay. Yeah, and, but what you have is what the committee wanted to say, and then it was altered and then published, proclaimed. So you have it, what the original intention, one of the things very famous in this story is um, the Declaration as originally written had an attack it had all these indictments of the king, all these things the king had done. And one of them was um, that the, um, the slave trade was, a, was an attack on the king as promoting the slave trade. So that's taken out of the Declaration of Independence that we know. Because the Virginians didn't, that would have been a problem. Well, it would have been a problem there. I think there's also an appealing to the decent regard of mankind. There's a hypocrisy, even, and you know, there's slavery everywhere in America, including here in Massachusetts. So, so I think there is a good argument in the Continental Congress for changing it, but it is something that was this opportunity that went by. And someone like Thomas Jefferson, a young guy in his early 30s, he was mad about these changes that had been made, and so he made 
manuscript copies, including one that we have, so people, his friends and the person he had studied law with, would know what he intended it to say. Okay, we're going to break. Yeah. Then we'll get into the, the war, yeah. uh, the Civil War, day one, actually. We're really going to break it down. It's a three-day battle at Gettysburg. We're going to do mostly day one. If you right. can, That's pretty cool. And thanks for talking about the Historical Society. By the way, if, if you could have dinner with one of the founders, which one would you choose? That's the founders. I think that um, there are a lot of descriptions of people having dinner with um, uh, Thomas Jefferson, so I kind of know what, feel like what that he did all the talking. I think if you had dinner with John Adams, it might be give and take. And, you think he might talk to you more? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a guy, a son of a farmer. He's a person who liked conversation, liked give and take, could be very funny. Um, um, really? And I think that might be, and, and then, okay. but Benjamin Franklin, who could miss that? Yeah, that would be an event. <laughs> I suppose, at first I thought Washington, because it might be cool to get a sense of his leadership quality. Maybe yeah. some, but he, he might be all standoffish and imperial. I, yeah, I think he made this deliberate effort to be the man of marble, to have a reserve. Um, and I think it would make it very hard. Some of his young aides once bet each other that someone would come up, just go up to him, put his hand on his shoulder, and people... <laughs> and did they do it? Someone did it on a bet, and then... What happened? Well, Washington just sort of icily stared at this person <laughs> for just getting that within his space. I wonder if, uh, if Washington found out it was a bet. Anyway... Why there? And I guess it was kind of an accident or? Yes. Yeah, so the the Confederate Army, after a great success in Chancellorsville, this great battle in May of 1863, had decided there had been this decision to invade the North, to pressure the Union into um, going along with secession so that they were going to take the war into the North. So the Confederate Army moved up through Western Virginia into Pennsylvania. So you have this odd situation of the um, uh, Confederate Army in Eastern Pennsylvania when the Great Union Army, the Army of the Potomac, is still in Maryland. So the Confederates are north and west yeah. of the um, their 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 idea is threaten Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Washington. So um, the reason of for Gettysburg is these two armies are kind of moving around trying to find out where each other is, these two great armies. And um, Gettysburg is a very small town, but it's where a lot of roads come together. So it's kind of a natural for people to be coming through it and to it. Now, the Confederate Army, not very well equipped, had this idea that there were um, and their shoes were made in Gettysburg. So they're, they're, they went into this town looking for shoes, um, and they bumped into uh, Union cavalry that were there. So this starts out as a kind of skirmish that builds up over the course of a day and then three days into a, maybe the greatest battle ever fought on the North American continent. So I'm looking at a map. If you look at Baltimore and you go up to Harrisburg, it's about midway latitudinally from there and it's to the west a little bit yeah and and a beautiful agricultural area of rolling hills um and small towns um larger towns both north and east of there what i look at the names of the towns german chambers hanover yeah 
Well, some of these are towns. Remember, Hanover is where you know has this Hanover here in Massachusetts. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it, but but you're right. This is a, 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 a um, there's a German population there. There's a long-standing um, agricultural um, settlement of that part, and it's considered like breadbasket of America. All right, I guess this is a good time to get into the start unfolding that first day. Yeah, so so this um, Confederate um, the the reason why the the Confederate army is sort of wandering around, and this is everybody's moving by foot. This is an infantry army, but the cavalry of the Confederate army, the very famous uh, uh, General Stewart and his cavalry, had um, guarded the flank of the Confederate armies that moved north, but then it had gone off on a um, what people at the time even called a joyride, a kind of riding around the Union Army. So the the um, uh, Confederate Army was sort of marching blind through the uh, countryside. Um, the As I say, the Union cavalry was out in front of their army moving north. Um, and so there was this uh, brush um, north and west. So the Confederates are coming from the northwest. The Union Army is coming from the south and east. So it's kind of backwards to our sense of the geography of the entire country. But locally, they're moving towards it. And Gettysburg's a small town that has um, ridges um, uh, north and west of it and then south of it. So the, the first day of fighting at Gettysburg is the the larger and larger numbers of Confederate soldiers showing up on the battlefield, marching in all these different roads from the north and the west into the town and pushing the um, Union soldiers, who are increasing in number but smaller in number, um, off of the ridges, uh, Seminary Ridge, <clears throat> the ridges north and west of the town. And then the key to this is a a series of hills and ridges south of the town of Gettysburg. And both of these armies by 1863 had done a lot of fighting against each other, and they had figured out that um, an army dug into a good defensible position, especially a position that had some height, height um, hills or um, uh, and behind stone walls or even earthworks, had a terrific advantage over attackers. So both armies were trying to figure out how they could make the other army attack them. So they could be the defender. Yeah, exactly. Uh, fire from behind protection um, caused lots of casualties. The, um, the Union Army had been defeated the previous December at a battle called Fredericksburg on the Rappahannock River, suffered terrible losses when it attacked the dug-in Confederate army. So there was the sensibility of the Confederates wanting to get into a position where the Union army would attack them, the Union army wanting to get into a position where the Confederates would have to attack them. I see. That's interesting. Trying to become the defensive person. Trying to goad or taunt the other side into attacking you. Making it look like... We're very vulnerable over here. Come and get us. Because it's it, and it's exactly that. It's sort of like, <clears throat> of course, if you spend a lot of time planning and figuring out the, what the best defensive um, position is. In theory, people are not going to try and attack you there. So the the first day at Gettysburg is really a 
competition, not for the town, but for who will control these hills and okay. ridges south of um, the town of Gettysburg. This, I think a lot of folks, myself included, think of it as a big set battle. Everyone is in place, and then they rush towards each other. But that wasn't the case. There are lower numbers of people, and as things started to un- involve, evolve, they would send messengers, I guess, out to their backups, to their reinforcements. Hey, there's a, there's a battle going on here. Get over here quick. quick. And so there, people would be streaming in from all directions. And remember, these are two armies that have been marching for weeks, marching yeah. through the spring and summer heat of Maryland and uh, Pennsylvania. So people had marched in some instances Probably. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hundreds of miles by the time they got there. So these are people. And then when the fighting started, there was just this pressure to march as quickly as possible to the sound of the guns where the battle's taking place. So there are people essentially going as fast as they could to get there and then immediately thrown into the battle. How much artillery was there if they were were running to the site, didn't have to leave their artillery behind, largely? No, this is all horse-pulled artillery, okay. but, but so both armies have hundreds of cannons. The, the individual units have some cannons with them. So on that first, in the first hours of that first day, the the Union Cavalry, the, under a uh, general named Buford, um, had, I think they had six cannons with the s- several thousand cavalry soldiers. The On the other side of the line, as the, the number of Confederates, which was much greater on the first day, they would have not all of their artillery pieces, but a substantial number as the day went on. What, what kind of... Rifles did they use? And I asked that, how far away were they from each other fighting? Well, they, what percent, were there a lot of people sh- shooting from 100 yards, or was it more go right up and hand-to-hand combat? Well, all of those things. The, the rifles they had, these are the infantry soldiers are carrying um, uh, um, uh, muzzle-loading rifles. That is that you, you um, have a paper cartridge and a bullet so you open the paper cartridge, you pour the the powder down the barrel of your your rifle, and then you you push the bullet down on top of it. Um, sometimes you use that paper as wadding, yeah. but that's so. This is a complicated um, uh, weapon to load so and if you're fire. Real, real good. How long? How many shots can you get off in a minute? One. More than one. More than one. Yeah, more than one. I think the soldiers knew what they're up to. And these are, remember, this is the, the war's been going on for two years. They're good at Now, there are a lot of soldiers that are relatively new, but there are certainly very experienced soldiers by that time. Now, the, interestingly enough, the uh, people on the other side, these Union cavalry units that were there, they were some of the first soldiers equipped with breech-loading Carbines. Carbine has a, is a, a rifle with a shorter barrel, but those were breech loaders, and that was a extraordinary improvement 
1863. I, I would think they would have had more of those, like the Winchester by then. Well, Didn't they, they have them in the West. The tech, not, not yet. Really, not, not yet. yet. They, okay. none of, no one had um, weapons that fired uh, metal cartridges wow. yet. Now, the technology was known, but armies are conservative. One of the things everybody's afraid of is you gave someone a weapon that fired um, um, many rounds, they would just shoot off all their ammunition very quickly. There were, there were um, pistols. A lot of people were carrying revolvers, cavalrymen, officers, even people had personal revolvers. But these are where you're loading the barrels individually of your revolver, not putting cartridges into wow. it. Back to the, the battle itself. What was the, the goal? There must have been no goal since it was almost an accidental battle. It was simply to kill the enemy and de- demoralize the enemy. Oh, and as far as the South goes... They wanted the British to see that they were legit because the British were no friends of the Union. Yes, that's right. There's there's this overall strategy that that the the I think that people in the Confederacy now remember the the Confederate states had a population of about nine million, of whom more than three million, going towards four million people were enslaved. So this is a a, a small population to be fighting a major war. The population of the northern states, the Union states, is more than twice wow. that number. So they need there the there's not much industry in the South. There's they need this support of the British. The British and the French. Another part of this is that on the way to this battle, the um, Union Army, the the general in charge of the Union Army, Joseph Hooker, had been fired. So there was a brand new commander, George Meade, a corps commander who was promoted to be the commander of the Union Army. So here's a guy who's stepping forward to be the commander of the army on its way to a battle, essentially. So um, it's remarkable. There's a lot of confusion, um, both mechanical uh, and this big landscape spread out. And then there's also what the problems that go with a new person in charge on the fly on their way to the battlefield. Why did Hooker get fired? He had done very badly at um, at Chancellorsville, a battle that took place only a few weeks before that. Um, he had an, um, a very large, um, a much larger army. And at that time, because there were troops away, Lee's much smaller army, an army essentially outnumbered approximately two to one, managed to defeat this much larger Union army in northern Virginia. The, the, then the reinforced, the Confederates used that to launch this campaign into the north. And um, Lincoln, Stanton, the Secretary of War, Halleck, the senior officer of your army, all had lost faith in Hooker. But it's just like a terrible idea to fire someone like in the middle of a campaign like that. And um, uh, they, they, they tried to offer this command to the senior officer under Hooker, who is a man named John Reynolds, a corps commander. And Reynolds, because of this interference from Washington and the operation of the army, wouldn't take the command of the army. He remained commander of the first corps, the senior corps of the army. And he is the person, the Union officer, who arrives on the battle 
field the first day, he sort of starts organizing the Union forces as they arrive, and then he's shot and killed. So on the battlefield, there's a brand new commander over all of the army, and then the office, the senior officer on the battlefield the first day is is killed very soon after his arrival there. Back to the reasons for that battle. Why bother to fight it? One was to show that the South was the real deal and worth the expenditure of France and Britain to join them and to help them out become an ally. And wasn't there something about wanting to just show there were a section of the population in the North who were kind of on the fence about this whole thing and show them that, you know, it's, you really don't want to continue with this. Anyway. We sort of have this substantial population lose their excitement for that and start to push against it. It's um, it, it both those things are. Remember that um, England and France are both um, textile producing countries. Cotton comes from the American South. There is this idea that um, they have not only political but business interests right. and a, the supply of and the South not being blockaded, cut off in the North. Um, there is strong resistance to the war. There, there there's uh, people who are um, dedicated to the cause of ending slavery, but a lot of people are very either. It's bad for business. Yeah, it's bad for business. Because the, the northern, northern process is the textile. There's, there, there's also the textile mills in the north that are springing up, but it's also this idea is it's this this uh, you can be you can actually be. Um, anti-slavery without thinking that the cost of a civil war right. or and there are also people who actually had the idea that if the if the states in the south were committed to this being a slave society maybe they should be let to go their own way not that that um, what's interesting is this there's this motivation of maintaining the union which seems to be a very powerful force in the North, but there's a counter to it. There's also, um, in the fall of 1862, there have been elections in the North. The uh, Republican Party, the party of Lincoln, has not done as well done well in those elections. So that this idea that there is lack of enthusiasm in the North, that maybe a terrible defeat of the North would bring that anti-war sentiment to the fore. Was it a close thing or was it never in doubt, the, the outcome of the Civil War? Along one line, the proportion of strength is so great that um, it's hard to see yeah. how militarily the South could have um, um, defeated the North. But it's at, the, at the, other ex the other extreme of that, the war was so costly right. over such a long period of time. You can see what they were trying to do in the Gettysburg campaign. The the South is make this so that the North will politically. Lose. It just is not what. Yeah, because I, the Vietnam was way out military, but they kind of won. Yes, and, and it, but but uh, you know at the other end of the world, you know essentially from you know where we're sitting, that they are the the here the the this was a a war fought between us mm -hmm. as a nation essentially, um, and it's um, 
what it is is this there is this sort of um, uh, you know commitment to these causes on both sides that keep both sides fighting at a kind of level um, that's really very striking. Back to the battlefield sure. on day one. How spread out is the fighting? Is it's concentrated over a few hundred yards, or is it concent- or is it spread out over a bunch of different sites, maybe miles apart? No, in the first day, the 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 fighting is very confined. It still spreads out, certainly over um, probably a couple of miles, um, the length of it, um, because as um, Confederate forces arrive from the north. And all these, there's like nine roads leading into Gettysburg. So these forces are coming down different roads. So what builds up is the Confederates are north and northwest and west of the town um, and fighting there. And then the the Union forces that are both outnumbered, they lose their commander. Um, they're pushed back through the town. And then it's a contest of what, as the day goes on, whether the Confederates can push through the town and capture these really important heights south of the town or whether the, the Union forces with reinforcements can hold them there. So does fighting stop after dark? Does, do they, and then if it's fighting stops, does everyone just kind of shelter in place or do the people sneaking around to try to get high ground? No, this is, this is very, there's very little, um, uh, night combat and, uh, and that, that because it's so hard to control people on a battlefield to keep people organized into units. And, and in some respects, these are, this, these are armies that have relatively modern weapons, rifles and, uh, rifled cannon and, and this equipment, but they're, tactics, that is how they organize and fight in the battlefield, look like wars from quite a bit before that. It's a, it's a modern war in a lot of ways, but it's sort of fought as if they were still using weapons from a previous time. That's why I think the casualties are so high. Isn't that always the way, though? Everybody's fighting the previous war? Yeah, the, and but, but this is one where there's some big technological advances being made right as the war takes place. The, again, um, by the time the, this is jumping ahead to the following year, by the, by the following year, the Union Army has units equipped with repeating rifles. Wow. They have um, uh, later the same year or early the next year, a submarine sinks a Union right. warship. warship. Um, people have this whole idea of now at, at Gettysburg, they're just taking advantage of stone walls or piling things up. But as the war goes on, they start fighting from trenches and, and, and uh, earthenwork fortifications that by the following year, outside of Richmond, the, they don't have barbed wire yet. But in every other respect, this looks like a First World War uh-huh. battlefield. So this, these advances are coming very rapidly, and it's very hard for the soldiers to keep up. Even someone like Robert E. Lee, who commanded this great army – um, during the Civil War, he was a regimental commander. He ha- he commanded a few hundred cavalrymen before the you know the the Civil War. Very few people had commanded any large units. There were very w- one of the things that happens in the Civil War is because officers are essentially leading from the front. There's terrible casualties among officers, and that's why you can't fight after dark because. 
your whole authority system of officers. Um, we think of Civil War soldiers marching around with flags and drums, yeah. and but all that those um, uh, bugle calls were signals that told you whether to attack or retreat. Where the flags were told you where the center of your unit so was. So you just couldn't operate. You, yeah, I couldn't operate. And also, I think by the the end you of the day, you needed to sleep. Yeah, people were simply exhausted. Okay. And it sounds like you're saying that, although they had there had been technological advances, and things had become mechanized, that they hadn't really figured out tactically how to take advantage of that. No, they figured out how to use railroads and how to make um, lots of weapons but not how to use them on a battlefield in a kind of way that didn't inflict this okay. enormous damage. So there's one uh, pretty major myth that when we envision, I think when most of us envision the Civil War and the Battle of Gettysburg, we envision it wrongly. And I think that you'll be surprised by what we tell you after this break on WBZ. What are you talking about? Bradley J. I'm stepping out with my Bradley Got Jay talking on all night. Jay talking. Lock 1030 on the Bradley BZ Radio. All right. WBZ News Radio 1030. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Supply chains are the lifeblood of business. It's time to learn to lead in this in-demand field. The Ohio State University Fisher College of Business offers an online Master of Supply Chain Management degree. This new program builds on their reputation in supply chain management and business education. Each online class blends self-paced live learning and immersive classes. Earn your Master of Supply Chain Management degree in as little as 15 months. Visit go.osu.edu slash mscm to learn more. The Ohio State University Fisher College of Business, where principled leaders are created. Would you put the radio on? Sure. I'm coming up to talk. Who wants to talk? Let's see what he has to say. Let's turn into a radio show. It's a beautiful night. Oh, what a night. I love this place at night. Think of these battles, I would think of hordes of men getting real close and bayoneting each other, maybe taking a couple shots and then running headlong and bayoneting. But it turns out that's not the case, according to records. Yes, there are very detailed records the, of the medical service, especially in the Union Army. And people analyze what injuries people suffer the, the patients in their hospitals, and in some instances, those killed in the battlefield. And it turns out lots of people are, are injured or killed by artillery fire. Um, the overwhelming number of people are killed or wounded by rifle fire. And a relatively small number of people um, suffer any kind of, you know, stabbed by a bayonet, cut by a sword, um, uh, or you know any or a knife or anything else that uh, there is 
people get close enough for hand-to-hand combat, but often they're using essentially their rifles as clubs rather than as essentially spears with your bayonet. You're kind of um, going at it. Also, a lot of people are carrying personal weapons, um, uh, large knives and, um, and pistols. Uh, few people are issued pistols, except in the cavalry or officers in the army. But they're, but many people are purchasing their own individual I weapons. Would. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, you know, having a six shooter in your pocket would kind of be a morale booster yeah. if you're firing a single shot rifle. But it, but it does. It turns out that there's not that that I I think there were bayonet charges. There was a famous one on the second day at Gettysburg. Um, but is that Pickett's uh, charge? No, no, that's that's in the third. The, what I'm thinking of is the the battle at Little Round Top, okay. the stand of the 20th Maine Regiment, which ran out of ammunition. Um, so instead of so instead of retreating, they, said, they fixed their bayonets oh, and attacked and won. At least in that this this um, uh, unit action. So it's not that there aren't, but even there, you get the impression that coming down the hillside, these soldiers with their bayonets, that most of the people got out of the way of them rather than engage in the really? kind of things. You could just you do see. that? So you're charging and the enemy's charging, you're just going to let them go by? No, no, no. That, that that seeing these people charging towards them, people got to a safer place. Oh, all right. They, didn't, they did not <laughs> join I, the I'm not saying I'm not saying that didn't happen, but it happened a lot less than perhaps you see in movies or your imagination tells you okay. that happens. So you, what I gather from you is that there, there could have been a lot more bayoneting, and they, they, they were certainly close enough, but there just wasn't the will to stick this long Bunk bayonet through somebody. And, and also the, with the weapons that they were carrying, a lot of people are killed at close range or wounded at close range, but you, but often by shooting each other. Okay. That, you know, and and these are, these are um, rifles that cause a, uh, enormous right. ghastly wounds. Also, something that I hadn't thought of is uh, during a battle, you might have a, a line of rifles firing, and you might be good shots, but after you've each fired off a couple of rounds, a couple hundred people firing, you get this wall of smoke you can't see through to see the enemy, and the same thing's happening over there. So you're yeah. not really aiming, you're just kind of shooting in that direction, right. with the exception of some isolated sharpshooters who are isolated enough so they're not blinded by their own smoke. Right. There the there this is um these are all black powder weapons, so they there's um white smoke whenever you fire, so that and then artillery the same thing. So pretty soon there's cloud haze over the battlefield. Um and the both armies there are organized units. Massachusetts itself has sharpshooter companies, um, but people who are selected as being good shots wearing green um, that's what I would taking do. <laughs> up taking up positions where the idea is to to, to shoot people over a long distance using rifles with telescopic sights. Really, even, even then, even then, they're different because the the telescope is a long telescope, like two feet long, and yeah, really so narrow. so it's yeah, so it's the length of the barrel of your rifle. But they but there's uh, burned in sharpshooters, very famous in the Union Army, and. Um, and, and so there'd be a detachments of the sharpshooters uh, interspersed through the army. Um, the one thing we should remember, we're talking about the first day at Gettysburg as being um, 
uh, a battle that goes on for two more days and builds up in violence over the course of three days. Nevertheless, the first day at Gettysburg is a major battle. Up until the time of the Civil War, it would have the first day at Gettysburg would have been as big a battle as it happened in American history. It's only because it's part of a battle that goes on over days. So there are thousands of people on both sides killed and wounded and captured on that first day. How many? Day. I think that people think that probably because the uh, by the, the Union got the worst of it, maybe six or 7,000 Confederate casualties and maybe 9,000 Union casualties. That's killed and wounded. And then there, uh, again, people Just are captured in both dead sides. Dead, bleeding, the ground littered with littered. human bodies. Some and dead, then, some and, screaming. And this very rudimentary um, medical service. So people coming, uh, being taken in to tented hospitals yeah. and um, uh, um, smashing wounds from bullets, amputations of arms and legs um, um, going on um, for hours at a time. There is anesthesia, um, but people are very quick in taking off a limb. Right. Or, yeah. Back then, as I understand it, the measure of a doctor wasn't saving the leg. It was how quick you could amputate it. Well, like I think— 90 there, seconds, you were good. Yeah, that, well, that, that to prevent shock. The other thing is the smashing wounds meant that it was almost impossible right. for, for people to maintain the use of a limb or not to die of infection right. afterwards. I want to talk about the cannon first, and then we'll, we'll be done. We won't have a chance to take any calls. How were the cannon used, and what kind of— I mean, did the cannon just shoot into the ground and roll the ball along to wipe no, out as that, many people as you could? Well, they they, they fired solid shot cannonballs. Yeah. Now, there are two kinds of cannons. There are smoothbore cannons, sort of like very, very large muskets, that were called Napoleons because they kind of looked like cannons going back to the yeah. Napoleonic Wars. And then one of these technological improvements, there were rifled cannon, um, a breech-loading rifled cannon, um, the the thing is that's really interesting about that is the cannon could fire over a, the rifled cannon could fire over a much longer range than people could figure out how to aim at. That is that there was no the targets system were of, much closer. Yeah, so so they're so they're firing solid shot over a long distance. They do have um, um, uh, um, fire balls that explode. I was wondering houser. about that. They, they, how did that work? Were they hollow and we, they'd did have, they have hollow fuses ball with a fuse attached to it, or a, a fuse attached? But they also had percussion fuses. That is, um, would, where where the concussion would set okay. off the so powder. So when I see a movie that does have cannonballs exploding exactly on impact, that's not incorrect. They had that. Yeah, but what you're usually seeing is, um, you know, again, these were this is black powder. You're 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 never seeing the kind of explosions you see in a movie. Okay. There, you're seeing an explosion, but mostly what's happening is people are just hearing the buzz of the pieces. After yeah. The, and then they then when they got up closer closer to you, you fired canister, which is essentially like um like the bird the right. the shot Chains and the shot and nails and yeah stuff. that's right a solid mass of things. Peter Drumming, a fantastic, fascinating chief <laughs> reference librarian. The Massachusetts Historical Society, and in the beginning of the program, we, we heard that you should get over there, uh, go on the website, and see what they have to see. 
Thank you so much for coming out late like this. You really add a lot to the program. It's great to know a guy like you. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.